What a difference a week a week makes, right? For the last two Sundays, we've been thinking about suffering and adversity. How God uses suffering in our lives and how we can and should endure that suffering when it comes to us. And if I can just be completely transparent for a minute, I had not intended to preach those sermons. We finished Exodus a few weeks ago. Today I was all primed to start a new sermon series on the solas, since we have these banners in our church and October is Reformation Month. What a better time to study about the Reformation and the solas than during Reformation Month, right? But I needed to get from there to here. And so I was just needing something to preach. And I, I don't do well just preaching one at a time, like one text at a time. And so I have been just kind of meditating upon just some things in my own life and just my own history. I've shared about the Wedgwood tragedy that was kind of fresh and coming up and kind of processing through that. And the Lord was kind of bringing back verses to mind that was kind of helping me. So I shared that with you. Basically, I was just kind of going through a time of self-reflection and hopefully sharing with you to help you in, in your own times of adversity. But who could have known what would happen this week? Little did we know that God was preparing us. I received a a lot of encouraging comments last Sunday from all of you. I do think, I think I said, don't compliment me, just praise the Lord. I do appreciate the feedback and the encouragement. And so many of you were touched last week by the word that I shared. In fact, Bruce McCormick pulled me aside. Remember, it was right here in the aisle, almost right where Chris and Randy are sitting. He came up to me and we were talking and he, he was kind of jokingly just saying, asking me if I had a live video feed into his home the previous week, because some of the things that I had shared in my sermon really dealt with his own life personally and some things in the life of his family the past few weeks, and he had drawn some strength from that sermon, and so he thanked me for it. But little did we know that God was preparing him and his family for the horrific tragedy that they would have to endure this week. I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. But I have stood in awe this week of God's providence and how He was preparing us through His Word for what we would have to endure this week. None of us could have imagined the valley that God was preparing for the McCormick's. Or for us, as we were walking with them through their sorrow. But I am here to tell you today that God is good. And He is faithful. He knows the end from the beginning. And He directs the course of history. He knew what we needed in advance. And He prepared us for it. And I believe that God's Word bore fruit this week. Because I saw it bearing fruit in the lives of Bruce and Carla and their family and in your lives as you stood with them. If you happen to be visiting this morning or perhaps you're not on the church email list and didn't get the updates or didn't check the updates, Bruce and Carla, Bruce normally leads worship for us. Bruce and Carla's um, son, Jordan, 
was involved in a terrible motorcycle accident late Monday night. And his injuries were so severe that he could not recover. And he died Thursday evening. Because of because of our love for Bruce and Carla, their tragedy has touched us, all of us, in a very deep way as well. And so today's message is going to be a little bit different than what we're accustomed to. So if you're visiting this morning, my apologies. I really wrestled because I believe we need God's Word. And I love to just study God's Word and share that with you. But partly because of the time and partly because I felt like it needed to kind of address this thing that's happening in our church. We're not going to go and have an expository message this week. We're going to do that next week. Normally we just take a passage out of the Bible and we kind of work our way through it try to understand it very well, and then share how we can apply that to our lives. But today I want to share some thoughts, some observations that have really resonated with me as we have tried to stand with the McCormick family. And these observations are deeply rooted in Scripture. I don't have a passage for you to turn to today. I've put all the biblical passages I want to read on the overhead, and we'll see those as we go along. This is more of a topical message um, but I felt like this was good. It was, it's edifying and it's, it's a word of exhortation. None of the things I'm going to share with you today are new. You know, you know these things. In fact, every Sunday, you know what I'm going to share with you. There's nothing new under the sun. Luther said the reason why he preached the gospel every week was because we forgot the gospel every week. And there are some things here that we not necessarily forgot, but just need to be reminded of and exhorted of, encouraged, where we've done well, challenge where we need to continue. And so I am going to share again some things that I've, that I've been reminded of this week in a very fresh way. I've titled the message, for a lack of creativity, <laughs> Lessons Learned from a Hospital Waiting Room. So what did we learn this week? What did we remember this week? What did we observe this week? I've got six of these, and I think they'll go fairly quickly. First thing we learned is life is short. Life is short. And the Bible repeatedly reminds us of the brevity of life, the brevity of our lives. In James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15, we read, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. In Psalm 90, verses 5 and 6, we read that we are like a dream, like, a gra- like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and in the evening it fades and withers. Life is short. We are made of dust. Our lives are frail and subjected to the curse of sin and death. Even if we were to imagine that our lives were to be a hundred years long, which is, again, much longer than the average life expectancy for most modern Americans. If we place those hundred years in the context of human history, it's still an awfully short time. If we say that, just for round numbers, if we say the earth is 10,000 years old, then even if we live to be 100, we would only constitute 1%. Our lives would only constitute 1% of human history. We'd have to live 100 lifetimes to be able to fill up 
that span of time that the earth has been in existence. And then when we consider that eternity eclipses human history, the days of our lives are utterly minuscule. I imagine this week a, a railroad track that spanned from one part of the, from one end of the country to the other, from, from coast to coast. And if you were to put a speck of, or a grain of sand on that railroad track, it would still be more than the amount of, of time our lives would take up in the span of eternity. Our lives are short. We will all die one day, but the days of our lives are in God's hands, and we do not know when that day will come. In Luke chapter 12, verses 16 to 20, Jesus told a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Life is short. Our times are in God's hands. Now, the older a person is, the more aware he is of his mortality. I'm more aware of it today at 45 than I was at 25. And I will probably be even more aware of it at 65 than I am right now at 45. And that's why I implore, especially the young people here. Jordan was 21 years old when he died. I don't expect that when he got on that motorcycle Monday night, that he thought he was going to die. He probably had plans for the next day. He was way too young by our standards, but we have no guarantee that we will have another day. And so I pray that you will see that your life is short, that it is fragile, that you'll see your life within the context of eternity, and that you will consider the weightier matters of life that transcend beyond this life. A reality that exists beyond the grave. Life is short. We must consider our days and our ways and we must give ourselves to the things that really matter. Observation number two. Death is ugly. Death is ugly. Folks, our culture does a great job of sanitizing death. Even glorifying it, making it look cool or great. But the reality is that death is ugly. And I don't mean to be morbid, but it crushed me to see the bodily effects that that accident had on Jordan. I've been in hospital rooms with patients and I've seen the crushing effects of heart attacks and strokes and cancer and blood clots. And in every case, death is ugly. And it's supposed to be ugly. Because death is God's curse for sin. Think about that. Death tells us what God thinks about sin. Death is God's response to sin. And what does God say about sin? When Isaiah chapter 59, verses 2 and 3 he says that the prophet says your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. 
For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. And in Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19, Solomon writes, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. So this is kind of a, a full encompassing of what God believes about sin, what He says about sin. He uses very practical examples to show the totality of His attitude towards sin. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Folks, God is not ambivalent to sin. God despises sin. He hates it. He abhors it. Sin opposes everything about God's character and nature, and so He acts against it. We can go back again to creation. Thinking about Adam and Eve when they sinned in the Garden of Eden at the very beginning of creation, God responded to their sin with a curse, right? And how did He curse them? He, he responded to their sin with the curse of death. Genesis three seventeen and 19. To Adam, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the bread, eat the the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Death is the consequence for sin. And since we're all sinners, we are all subject to death, right? Paul says this in Romans 3.23, 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. And then he goes on in chapter 6, verse 23 to say, for the wages of sin is death. The payment, what you are owed for your sin is death. Death measures out God's justice for our sins. It measures out God's justice for the things that we have done against Him for our rebellion. And so, for that reason, death affects us. Its effect upon us and upon our bodies is wretched. Death is supposed to be ugly. We ought not to sanitize it or glorify it. We ought to mourn at death because it reveals the true ugliness of our sin. It reveals the true Rebellion that we have committed against God. We should be angry when we see death because we see what sin has done to us. So death is ugly and it should be a haunting reminder to us of the reality of sin and its affront to God. Observation number three. God gives hope and comfort. God gives hope and comfort. Death is ugly. It is bleak. It is hopeless. But God gives hope. And that hope comes to us through the redemptive work of Christ. Because on the cross, what was Jesus doing? He was paying the penalty of our sin. The penalty that God required of us for the things that we had done wrong. He suffered on the cross so that we wouldn't have to suffer for eternity. He bore our sins in His body. 
And God subjected Jesus to His wrath so that we would never suffer the justice that was due for our sins. Jesus, yes, He died in our place. By His death, we have been absolved of our sins. We have been forgiven. We have been brought into a new relationship with God. A relationship where He is our Father and we are His children. And then, God didn't leave Jesus in a tomb somewhere to rot. He raised Him from the dead. And it was important for that to happen. First, because Jesus did nothing worthy of death. If there's anybody who's ever lived who wasn't a sinner, it was Jesus. He was completely sinless. That's why He could die in our place. And so God raised Him from the dead to show that the sacrifice was sufficient to take away our sins. And now because He has been raised from the dead, He lives forever, forevermore. And now those of us who repent of our sins and who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ are saved from the power of death and we live unto God forever. I love what Jesus says in John 11, verses 25 to 26. You should read that chapter, by the way, this, this, this week. Read John 11. It's the story of raising Lazarus from the dead. When Jesus gets there, He says to uh, Martha, who is Lazarus' sister, He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I love that. Right now, in this age, in this era in which we live, we still suffer the consequences of the fall. We still suffer the physical death. But he says here that even though we die in this life, yet, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. There is the second life. And there will be no second death for those who believe in Him. Hallelujah! What great hope that is for us. So Jesus, by His death and resurrection, crushes the power of sin and death over us. They had no power over Him. And that's what I love about the story of Lazarus, right? God, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, testifying to the power of God. And what did the, what did the Pharisees want to do? What did the religious leaders want to do? They wanted to kill him again. I kind of find that funny. Is that not ironic? It's like it didn't work the first time. What makes you think it'll work again the second time? Jesus conquers death. Death, the, the, the greatest power in this world is death. It is something that we cannot overcome. But Jesus overcame it. And he conquered death forever. He conquered the curse of sin and death forever. That's why he lives forevermore. That's why our hope is that we have eternal life because He lives. Death has no power over us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 to 57, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus defeated the power of sin and death that reigned over us. He told them to go to hell where they belonged. The defeat of sin and death, the supremacy of Christ and the victory of His redemption gives us hope. That's why Bruce and Carla could look into Jordan's situation. They could be with Him there in, their, in His dying moments and they could rejoice Because death could have no hold over Jordan. 
It's that hope and that that sustains us during these times. It's that hope that comforts us in times of tragedy. It's that hope that, that comforts us, that sustains us even in times of death. Right? Bruce and Carla, they, they grieved. They mourned. Yes, it's true, they did. But it was the hope of God that comforted them and that sustained them. The hope that Christ defeated death once for all. And that because of Jordan's own walk with the Lord by repenting and believing in Christ, that death had no claim over him. So there in the hospital, with tragedy all around them, grief, mourning, sadness, they were walking in victory. And it was truly amazing to me. It was faith-building to me to see them walking in hope every step of the way through the horror that they faced. They reflected to me what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8-10, through 10, a passage that we looked at just two weeks ago, where Paul says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be also manifested in our bodies. It's that hope that sustained them and that comforted them. That, that comforted them. It's the hope that gave them joy. And unless you've been in that situation, you can't imagine the kind of sorrow and grief and even confusion that they felt. And yet every time I saw them at the hospital, from the moment that I walked down that corridor and caught Bruce's eye, Early Tuesday morning, both Bruce and Carla have had smiles in their faces. Is that, did anybody catch that? They were always smiling. And not just smiling, they were radiant. There was a radiance that just glowed from them. There was a deep joy that the Holy Spirit was producing in them, and it was just coming out, just effusing out. I found it also interesting that as many came to the hospital in those three days to comfort them, I felt that they were actually comforting us. Did you experience that too? We're going over there to support them, to encourage them, to, to just put an arm around them. And here they are. They're the ones smiling at us. They're wiping away our tears. They're hugging us. They're telling us it's going to be okay. And that only makes sense because God was, was comforting them in a unique way because of the hope that they had in the midst of this tragedy. As the Scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-5, through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And so I know they're not here this morning. Their intention was to be here. I don't know how they were planning on being here. But they actually had, for the first time, a down moment this morning. And they were going to take it. I told them to take it. But I want, even though they're not here, I want to publicly commend them for how they comforted us with the comfort that God was giving to them. I want to thank them for the joy and the radiance that they reflected in this severe trial. And I want to thank them most of all for the hope that pointed us 
to God and to the gospel. Observation number four, people are hurting. People are hurting. It's true. There's hurting people all around us, right? And it makes sense because we're sinners. We live in a fallen world. We suffer the effects of the fall. And through the fall, pain and grief and hurt and brokenness enter the world and we are all affected. And yet, do we see the pain and the hurt of others? Are we sensitive to what is going on in the lives of others? And do we look for ways to share the hope of God to those who are suffering? While sitting in the waiting room, members of our church had repeated opportunities to minister to hurting people. It was so wonderful. That waiting room, I've never seen a waiting room so full of people. And they were almost all there for the McCormick, fa- for the McCormick family. And yet they were, there were people there who had loved ones in the ICU. And they were there. And they were hurting. They were broken. They were, they were suffering. And yet so many of you reached out to them to talk with them, to share with them, to pray with them. There were a number of people that we prayed with. I counted at least six people that we prayed with either in the waiting room or back in the rooms of the ICU where we were. People with physical needs, emotional needs. And those revealed the deep spiritual needs that they had. Hurting people need the gospel. They need the comfort of God. And it's very clear who hopes in God and who doesn't. We saw that too. Bruce and Carla going through this horrific tragedy, hoping in God, grieving, but with hope. And we saw one family in particular that I can remember grieving as if they had no hope at all, coming out of the ICU ward, just wailing, inconsolable, sobbing, reflects the lack of a foundation in God, reflects a lack of relationship with God and a lack of hope in the gospel. So I'm very thankful for those of you who reached out to those families as we prayed for them and we tried to encourage them to share with them the hope of the gospel. I just want to encourage you to continue to look because they're not just in the hospital, they live next door to you. They're in the cubicle across the hall from where you work. They're in the seat in front of you in biology class. They're a family member maybe you haven't talked to in a while. Maybe you're estranged from. They're all around us. And we need to see their hurts and minister to them. Number five, observation number five. When we are pressed, what's inside will come out of us. When we are pressed, what is inside will come out. I thought back to the Israelites. They used to harvest the grapes, right? They'd bring them to the wine press, and that wine press would crush the grapes. And what came out? Grape juice, right? Because what's in grapes? Grape juice. When they were squeezed, when they were pressed, the grape juice came out so they could make wine. What is inside of us also when we are pressed will come out. Now, I want to say this. The Bible is very clear that trials in our lives do produce a work in us. They do a work in us. God uses those to build our faith. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Romans 5, verses 3 and 4. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So suffering does something in us 
It produces the work of God so that we grow in Christ's likeness. We become more and more like Him. But I think it also reveals what's already in there. It reveals what's already in us. When we are pressed with adversity, what is in us will come out. So what came out this week when Bruce and Carla were pressed? Joy? Hope? Faith? Gospel? I saw the fruit of the Spirit being pressed out of them, and that was so incredibly faith-building to me. But here's the thing about that. What was in them was not there by nature, and what was in them was not there by accident. What was in there was produced by a lifetime of walking with God. What was in them was built by loving God, by believing in Christ, by worshiping the Lord, by studying and submitting themselves to His Word, by prayerfulness, by serving the Lord, by fellowshipping with the saints. Not sporadically, not haphazardly, but regularly and consistently. It's an, it's an anomaly that they're not here this morning. We can excuse that. But what even impressed me more was that their desire was to be here this morning. Even with everything that's happened this week, even with all the emotions, even with all of the, the being tired, their desire, even as late as yesterday, was to be with God's people this morning. Does it surprise us that when they were pressed, what we saw came out? That's why it's important to keep walking with the Lord because adversity will strike your life, and when you are pressed, what's in you will come out. And if there's no hope, hopelessness will come out. If there's no joy, sorrow, extreme sorrow will come out. We must endeavor. It's an exhortation to me, and I'm exhorting you as well, to keep walking with God. Because what, what's in us will come out when we're pressed. What will come out in you when you are pressed? Last observation. The church is a means of God's grace to us. The church is a means of God's grace to us. God provides grace to us in so many ways, and one of those ways is through the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26 says, if, any, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 says, Bear one another burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So when one of our own this week was suffering, we mourned with them. We were sorrowful with them. We gathered around them to help bear their burdens. And I'm just going to say this as well. I've never been prouder of this church or any church I've ever been associated with than I was this week. You responded to the call. I didn't even ask anybody to come. The word kind of just got out and you guys just flocked there. It's just amazing to see how you responded. I've never, I've already said this, I've never seen a waiting, waiting room so full of people just to support one family. I've been doing this a while and I've never seen that before. That was true. I was expecting, I was just, I was partly, I was praying, Lord, please don't let the hospital staff come out here and tell us to go away. So I thought they might say, you guys got too many people here. You guys got to take it somewhere else. Just full of people. Some of you had to stay, 
stand for hours because there wasn't enough places to sit. And some of you just didn't come. You came and you stayed the whole day. And you didn't just come one day. You came back the next day and the next day. Some people in the ICU had no one to wait for them. But you came to stand with the McCormicks. You endured this trial with them. You wept with them. You laughed with them. You prayed for them and with them. You sang with them. You encouraged them. John's right too, by the way. I didn't put that in here. There's, I got probably 15 things I could have said this morning. But music, songs, how God ministers to us through song. One of the most beautiful things was Thursday afternoon when the McCormick family went back to go remove Jordan from life support and the people that were still there just singing hymns of encouragement and faith. Great is thy faithfulness. It is well. Those songs have never been more meaningful to me than in the, that moment. How encouraging, how faith-building that was. You encouraged the McCormick's. You brought food and snacks and supplies. You were one way that God poured out grace upon this family. And as a pastor, I was super in- encouraged because I saw the church being and doing what a church is supposed to be and do. You can't program that. You can't budget that. You can't committee that. What I saw this week was my vision for this church. We talk a lot about vision, right? Five-year plans. And it's all about the next big thing. What's the next big thing we're going to do? No. It's how the church acts. It's how the church is. It's how the church lives together. Wednesday night prayer meeting a few weeks ago, I thought, this is just exactly what I'd like to see. This is, this is my vision. God's people gathering together, loving one another, praying for one another, encouraging one another. That's what it was. The early church didn't make it overly complicated. We didn't have an announcement to come to the hospital at such and such time. You just showed up. Because that's what the church does. And I want to commend you for that. You can't program that. Nearly every family was represented in some way, either at the hospital or through text messages, through emails. I got emails from the mills in Michigan praying for the McCormick's. We got a phone call from the uh, Ramoses in Puerto Rico. I got a text on Friday from them. We heard about them. We're praying. That's what a church is supposed to be and to do. I'm so grateful for that. God pulled us together, united us. And that's what we should be about. And I want to also, again, they're not here, but I want to commend Bruce and Carla for receiving the support of their church. It could have been really easy for them to say, we don't want you here. They could have cocooned themselves and said, we don't want you to see George in this condition. There's nothing for you to do. You can go home. We'll let you know when we're done. They let us into into their lives. And they received the grace that God intended for them through his people. And that's not an easy thing to do sometimes, but that's what the church is for, and so I commend them for that. And I don't even have time to talk about the other churches and other pastors and other Christians that came and supplied God's grace through what they did, but the body of Christ beyond these walls was amazing as well. We thank God for the grace he gives to us through his body. So these are just a few of the many thoughts and emotions and reflections that have been running through my mind and heart this week, and in many ways they are imperfect, they are still jumbled. (laughs) I still feel like I'm living in a cloud. They're undeveloped thoughts, they're random in some ways, but I pray that they've been encouraging to you. I pray they would help you to process your own thoughts, your own emotions from this past week, 
Even more, I pray that it would help you to examine your own lives so that when adversity befalls you, you will be found as refined, pure gold. At the forefront of all these thoughts, though, is the truth that God is sovereign and good. In Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30, we read, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those he called, whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. In 1773, William Cooper penned a hymn to help us see the sovereignty and goodness of God in the midst of deep, deep suffering. You should read about Cooper and just the struggles that he went through. He wrote this hymn, and I just want to read the lyrics to it, and we'll be done and move on to communion. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace behind a frowning providence. He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for how your word just really just brings it all together for us. Uh, Lord, I've, I've really prayed. I've, I've, my heart's desire to it is to have honored you this morning in the things that I've said. And I don't mean to speak out of my heart, Lord. I want to speak out of your word always. And so I pray that everything that we've said has been saturated with scripture. But Lord, thank you for reminding us of these precious truths, Lord. Things that are so simple, but yet we just easily lose sight of. And God, I pray that you would work in our own hearts as we examine our own lives to see where we stand before you, to consider the length of our days, the number of our days, to how we live before you, to our relationship with you, and to those means of grace that you put into our lives so that we might be filled to be people who honor you and are a blessing to others. God, help us. Help us to be who you want us to be. Help us to walk, Lord, as you desire us to walk. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.